Good morning, High Point. The scripture passage this morning is lengthy. Um, it will start in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, and we will go to Luke chapter 21, verse 4. You can um, find this on page 1600 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And we're going to go right into it. Luke 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it to a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, uh, the seven died, leaving no children. 
Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Everyone. One of the things I've said a number of times here is that the words we use often control the way we think about things. So some years ago, I realized that whenever I referred to the way I thought about something, I would always say the part of me doing the thinking was my brain. I'd say, you know, I've got this in my brain, or my brain's doing this, right? And and of course, I believe I have a brain, and I believe that my brain is intimately involved in the things that I think in ways that I understand and don't completely understand. But what I found was that when I referred just to the naturalistic part of myself, only to the biology, it had an effect on my emotions. It made me feel a little less responsible personally and morally for what was going on in my mind and heart. And so I intentionally, like, started to say the word mind and not say the word brain. And I found that it did have an effect on how much personal responsibility I took for how I was feeling and what I was thinking. Sometimes it's the language that we use about things. Right, there's, there's, there's actually a word that we never say in church anymore. It's been used by the Judeo-Christian tradition for more than 2,000 years before Jesus. And it is fundamental to understanding the kind of attitude we're supposed to have in our lives that point us towards God in the right way, that order our hearts in the right way, and that give us the kind of attitude by which we can be saved, we can walk with God, we can keep in step with the Spirit, we can have the mind of Christ, right? And it's the word, it's the word piety. So two weeks ago, I talked about unbelief and how from the end of the passage relating to Zacchaeus in chapter 19 through until the end of this passage, Jesus is essentially attacking unbelief. And I said two weeks ago, unbelief isn't the same thing as ignorance, doubt, disbelief, or non-belief. If you want to hear more about that, just go to that sermon or go to one of our last podcasts. That those are different things. Unbelief is not just not believing or struggling with believing or being ignorant of certain facts. It is the orientation of the heart in pride away from God. 
It's the orientation of the heart in pride away from God, and piety is its opposite. It is the, it is the beautiful and perfect union between faith and humility. It is the heart in the humble state of being pointed toward God in faith. It's piety. Humility is not enough. Like, you can be a good stoic. You can be relatively self-forgetful and have a pretty reasonable understanding of who and what you are and not be inordinately self-promoting. You're humble. That's not the same thing as godliness. And that's not all that you're meant to experience in humility. Humility is supposed to put you in a state where you can rightly orient your heart toward God in faith. And when both of those are together, that is piety. It is the opposite of unbelief, and it is the, it is the proper state of the human heart before God. Does that make sense? All right, now, um, one of the things that Jesus is trying to get across in this passage is that our feelings, our thinking, and our attitude about God does not change anything about God. Okay? Our thinking about God, our feelings about God, or our attitude about God does not change anything about God. One of the things that happens with human beings is, is that we naturally feel, especially if we're in positions of authority or if we're highly educated, that if we say or believe certain things are true, and we say them often enough, and we get other people to agree with them, and we feel like there's a general acceptance publicly about them, that they in fact become functionally true, and we can't be contradicted on the basis of them anymore. Right? Because if you contradict these, like, publicly understood ideas, then, like, you're an extremist or something. Or there's something wrong with the way you think, or you're not sufficiently sophisticated to realize that you're ignorant, right? And yet, one of the most ironic things in this passage is that one of the most truthful things spoken about Jesus is from the people trying to trap him. When they say to him, you know, one of the great things about you, teacher, is you don't show partiality. You don't pay attention to who men are. You just tell the truth of God as it is. As though that was a good thing, because they were really trying to butter him up so he would say something unguarded so that they could arrest him and throw him over to the governor. But what they were saying about him was actually really true, and it's what they hated about him. The fact is, is that we all have these big, broad assumptions that we think are completely untouchable that Jesus contradicts all the time. Right? Especially like us wealthy, educated Americans, right? Like, we think we can tell God who we are. Do you know, do you realize this? Like, we just commonly behave like we can tell God who we are. Like, have you ever read the Bible? Like, one of the most fundamental ideas in the Bible is nobody gets to tell God who they are. God tells you who you are, right? Or that, like, we need to do whatever we need to to pursue happiness however we feel like we need to pursue it. What? No! No, every page of the Bible contradicts that idea. No, you must find happiness through virtue. Right? Or we don't have to have any relationships with anybody in responsibility other than those we choose. No. You are born involuntary and you exist in many relationships that you have responsibilities to that you did not choose. Parents, children, work associates, neighbors, government, God— you can't say, because I'm an individual, I don't choose to be involved. You are in the web of reality. You have these relationships. The question is whether or not you will respond to them properly. Our lives are full of these assumptions. And one of the things Jesus is getting at in this passage is he's saying, listen, 
Whether your feelings, thoughts, or attitudes about God, you believe just in yourself, in your own heart, or you share them with a lot of people around you, and whether you feel like you're very safe in them, like people feel safe in a mob, they have no effect on God. God still thinks what he thinks. He still feels what he feels. And his attitudes are exactly the same as they always were. And it is extremely spiritually, personally dangerous not to see that. All right, so let's go through a couple of these ideas in this passage. So in the first section, the key statement is Jesus saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you can imagine a bunch of builders building like a stone temple or something, and there's this stone that they don't like. It's, it's kind of shaped a little weird. It's a little interesting, but it's just not going to fit in what they're building. And so they throw it away, right? And they build a bunch of the building, and they come, ho- they come back, and somebody has finished the building, and they've used that stone they didn't like as the stone that sets everything in place, and that basically speaks artistically in everything about the architecture of the building. The whole building is now placed off of that stone, and it's a stone they never wanted to be part of anything. And Jesus is like, this is what you need to understand. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. So think about how this works. So Jesus goes into the temple, and he drives out all the people that were selling animals for worship, right? And all the different things that were being bought and sold there. And then he he uses that space that he's cleared out to teach the people God's word, right? And so this group of people come up to him, and it says in Luke that they are the elders of the people, the teachers of the law, and the priests, okay? So between these three people, they own everything religious, okay? So the priests own the temple and the worship. The teachers of the law own the Bible and its interpretation. And the elders of the people represent the democratic will of all the people of Israel. They are the elders, so, like, that is all the authorities that exist in Judaism. Like where, like, where does Jesus get the right to do this stuff? Because the elders didn't give him authority, so he has no authority from the people. The priests didn't give him authority, so he has no temple-based religious sacrificial authority. And the teachers of the law didn't give him authority. He has no Bible authority. Where does he get his authority from? And so they ask him, where'd you get this authority? Or what they think is the same question, who gave it to you? And now, the literal answer to this question, which isn't in the text, is something like, The answer to that question is, you don't have the authority to ask me where I got this authority. That's the real answer, right? But Jesus is a little more tactful, and he says, listen, let me, let me talk about John the Baptist, right? Remember John the Baptist? Remember you didn't like him? Was his baptism, was his ministry, was it from God or was it from men? Did God give him authority or did he just take it on his own? Because none of the three of you gave him any authority, right? And they were kind of trapped because everybody knew that John was from God. And they couldn't say out loud that he wasn't. So they back down, and then he tells the parable about the vineyard and the tenants, right? So there's this big vineyard, and it's all pre-created, and then so these people rent it, right, from the, from the landowner, and they don't give him any money. Just when the crops come in, they're supposed to give him some of the crops. And so he sends a servant, a servant, a servant, and they treat each one progressively worse until he sends his son whom they kill, right? And then he says, what do you think is going to happen? Now this is important because One of the reasons Jesus tells this parable is because in Christian faith, over and over again, God affirms and affirms and affirms throughout the Bible that moral degradation or sin always comes in the presence of mental delusion. You you will—you never have in human experience just sin where people know exactly what it is, what it means, what it accounts for, and everything. 
delusion always goes along with it, okay? And so these, these people have literally persuaded themselves that if they kill this guy's son, they are next in line to be the heirs, right? Because they're already there. They already live there. They've already been doing the work. It's basically already their vineyard. And so if they kill the guy who's literally the heir, I mean, th- th- surely they're next in line. And you're like, these guys have got to be nuts. Exa- that's exactly the point, you see. The stupidity and the complete disconnection from reality of the, of the tenants of the vineyard is supposed to remind us of ourselves. That we think that way. That we think all these things about God, and we think that we get to think them. We think we can just think them. We're like, well, I think this, and I think that I can do what I want. And I think I can tell God who I am, and I think I can define my own life. I think I can make it my own morality. I think I can do whatever I want with God's word. I think I can say salvation is whatever it is I want it to be, and I think that's all going to be okay. And how could he possibly? And the answer is, no, n- no. No, to do that, you kill his servants. You kill his son. You destroy what he's trying to do. You think you're next in line for the vineyard? You're not next in line for the vineyard. Right? And he says, listen. And so the people hear this, right? The Jewish leaders are like, may this never be. And Jesus says, it's already happened. Right? They're like, they're speaking about the future. I hope this never happens to us. He says, listen, the prophets have already said it. It's already done. It says in the Psalms about the messianic era, the stone that the builders rejected will become the capstone. You will reject the most important thing that will ever happen. And it will be, and then Jesus adds to it, right? So, this portion is a quote from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, which is part of this larger set of verses. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me, and you have become my salvation. So you see, the context here is God is going to create a way of salvation specifically involved with both giving his people righteousness and them entering into his righteousness and his presence permanently. Now, what is one of the fundamental facts about how God is actually going to do that in the moment of the Messiah's coming? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You've probably heard people say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You probably didn't know it was this context, right? See, what he's saying is, for the people who see that God has reversed all human expectations in his Christ— and the Son of God dying for sin and being raised from the dead. Nobody ever could have planned that. Nobody ever could have expected it. Nobody ever could have predicted that. And so for those who accept it, those who enter into the temple God has made with the stone at the center that is his beautiful cornerstone, those of us who believe it, our response is in the psalm. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Right? But you see, in this context, Jesus is talking to people who do not like it. And he adds this phrase, this sentence. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You see, what he's saying is is that God's will, especially in salvation, especially in relationship to his Christ, is like a stone that people really, really, really hate. And so they come to this temple that they built— They're like, I built this temple. They didn't build the temple any more than the tenants built the vineyard, okay? But they feel like they built this temple. They feel a certain kind of ownership over it, like the priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of the people felt ownership over the Jewish nation. They're like, this is our nation. And they come up to this temple with this beautiful cornerstone at the top of it, and instead of walking into the temple and saying, this is so amazing what God has done, they take out their sledgehammers, or they take out their fists, and they try to beat 
the stone off. And Jesus is like, listen, you guys. Stones don't give way to human flesh. If you beat against the stone, you'll be destroyed. If you pull out everything that's under it, it will fall on you and crush you. You, you will die in your attempt to destroy you. It's like beating on a stone with your fists. You can think all kinds of things. You can have all kinds of thoughts and feelings and attitudes about what God must be like. But God, it does not affect what God is like. And the thing that he's done is a complete reversal of human expectations. He's changed everything about what we would think. He has become in himself the sacrifice for our sins. He has loved us through all our wickedness. He has been merciful, but he is not flexible. One of the, one of the most fundamental ideas you have to get in your mind is this. The God of Scripture, the God that is revealed in the person of Christ, is infinitely merciful and not at all flexible. Okay? It's very important. If you don't get that, you can't understand the God of the Bible at all. He is incredibly merciful, and he's completely inflexible. So if you're like, well, I don't think that's right. Okay, just go through, the, go through the Gospels and look for each place in which somebody tries to change Jesus. Okay? Just read them. I mean, there's one that probably jumps in your mind if you've ever read the Gospels, right? There's the place where Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and it's going to be terrible. And his best friend Peter says, what? Oh no, Lord, that's not going to happen. Now you would think, like, if Jesus was interested in being changed— the prediction that he's going to get murdered and impaled on a tree and bleed to death out in the sun naked in front of everybody, like that would be a change he would be open to. He'd be like, yeah, maybe let's do something else. Right? But what's his response? What's he say to his best friend? Get behind me. Satan. He's like, no, you are like, you are the devil, buddy. And it's not because he doesn't love him. Of course he loves him. He's his best friend. But he's trying to tell Peter, you are not going to change me. Don't change me. God is not flexible. Because to be flexible, he'd have to be morally flexible. He's not morally flexible because he always makes the right choice. He always believes all the right things. He's not morally flexible, and he's working in infinitely complicated plans. Like, you don't get to tell the God who is working in infinite number of variables, hey, can you work in my 25 desires for things that won't even help me and will destroy my life? The answer is no. No. You have to trust in piety that he is working for your good. Do you understand? Okay, let's move on to the next one. I'm going to come back to these applications at the end. All right, so second, um, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. So there's this passage, right? So, he, so they're trying to catch him, and, you know, the Roman governor can kill him, so let's get in him in trouble with Rome. And so he says, okay, Jesus, every year there's the tribute payment where we actually give a payment to Rome, and in it we are making tribute to the Roman Caesar, okay? Should we do that or shouldn't we? Now, it's a little bit of a disingenuous question, because essentially the argument is, because, because it's idolatry, and because Rome is our oppressor, shouldn't we not give them their coins that are idolatrous? Because on the coin itself, it says, right, this says, Pontiff Maxim, which means high father, but in the case of Roman religion, so it means that the, that the Roman Caesar is the high priest of the Roman Empire. And then here it says, um, let me see if I can remember, is Augustus Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That is, that he is king and God. 
right? So the coin has the image of Tiberius, the Caesar, who's at that point reigned for 20 years. He is king and God, and he is high father and high priest, right? So you see the question? The whole thing's idolatrous. Like, and then we pay this, like, isn't that your religious Jesus? And, you know, you can imagine Jesus thinking like, yeah, did you have a problem when you were buying a car with the same coin last week? Or like, you're willing to do all your commerce with this stuff. You're willing to be completely worldly with it. But when it's actually time to pay your taxes, right, he recalls it for himself and you don't want to pay it. Now all of a sudden it's like irreligious and you don't want to pay it or you want to get me trapped by it. He says, look at the coin. And now here's something for biblical interpretation. Hermeneutics, if you want to feel sophisticated. When you interpret the Gospels, there are certain places where the Gospel writer is telling the same story about Jesus and the words of Jesus are slightly different in each one. So, for instance, when Jesus, um, uh, oh, when, when Peter confesses Christ, in one gospel he says, you are the Christ, and one he says, you are the Messiah, and the other says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living— oh, you're the Son of God, and then you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Those aren't different. Right? They're different. The literal words are different, but they're not different. Peter confesses the identity of Christ. Which literal set of words he says, we don't actually know, right? That doesn't—because it doesn't—because what the gospel writers are signaling is it doesn't really matter. You're getting the same point for each of those phrases. He said one of those three or some combination. The point is that Peter understood that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ. He got it, right? Now, in this case, all three gospel writers have the words exactly the same. Because, why? <clears throat> because the exact words matter for the interpretation of the parable. He says, whose image and inscription. Whose image and inscription whose picture is on it, and whose writing is on it. And you can see that both are relevant. It's the picture of Tiberius himself, and the inscription is very aggressive. He's king and God, and he is high priest father, right? Now, and then he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, and give to God what is God. Now, for a, for a lot of people, a lot of people have argued that this verse is the most fundamental verse in the Bible about the separation between church and state. That there are two spheres— and one is the, the sphere of the state. One is the sphere of religious faith. The two should be separate, and the role of the church and the role of the state should be separate, right? And historically speaking, this verse was understood that way. And if you take this verse and you add a bunch of thinking to it, you will eventually get to that idea. But that's not what the verse itself means, right? Think about what it says. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. That's the coin, right? Give to Caesar what Caesar's. And give to God what's God. So in Roman culture, Tiber the Caesar actually owned all of the coins that bore his image. If the coin had his image on it, he owned it. It was loaned to you. You were using it. But he could recall it because it was his, right? And so Jesus says, well, give it back to him if it's his, right? But then he says, but give to God what's God's. Well, what's God's? What's he talking about? Like, there, there were no coins with God's image on them, right? What's the only thing in the Bible— that has God's image and his inscription, right? Answer is, human beings are the only thing, right? Only human beings, does the Bible say, bear the image of God, and God has said what they are. They bear his inscription. So the human beings are the thing which belongs to God, and so how much of your life does, can God recall as tribute? Everything. Everything. You see, the application here is piety. Does, will you give it all to him? It all belongs to him. He, all, he rightfully owns all of it. Now, politically speaking, if, it, if that's true, if you owe all of your life to God, 
And a subset of your responsibilities is to the state. What kind of state would you want if you had some say in it? Well, you wouldn't want a state in which what the government required of you and what God required of you were in conflict with each other so as to split your loyalties between them, which doesn't necessarily have to happen. I have a wife, for example, and I have responsibilities to my wife and I have responsibilities to God, and they don't come into conflict with each other. God has given me my responsibilities to my wife. He's told me what my responsibilities to my wife are, and so there doesn't need to be a wife-church, like, wall of separation. The two are in union with each other because they have certain rights and roles and responsibilities. So does the government. But you see, if we have the wrong kind of government, if the government becomes tyrannical and begins to call from us things that we can't give it, then our lives are torn. We could be in conflict and we could ultimately be persecuted or killed. Now, if you were in, under the Roman rule, you might not have any say about it, and you might just have to make the best of it. But if you lived in a democratic society where you actually had a responsibility to be involved in the creation and functionality of your government, you might want to think very hard about giving the government more power, giving it more scope, giving it more possibilities, allowing its laws to be interpreted however people want to interpret them instead of being interpreted very narrowly. You'd want to be very careful about some of those things. Even if you were in power, even if your ideology was in power, you'd want to be very careful with that. Because it doesn't take much to move it and expand it in such a way as to where then you are caught in the wheels of its working. And if you are stamped by God, you must give yourself to him. You are his tribute. And if that comes in conflict with the state, then you will be in conflict with the state. And I'll just tell you, from human history, that's not fun. That doesn't mean that we should try to use the state to tyrannize others. It just means that we should be wise about what kind of state we support. Okay. So then, the, so the first is about whether or not we're going to break ourselves over the stone. It's the negative message of piety. The second is, whose tribute are you? The positive message of piety. Now the second two have to do with learning. So the first two, he was attacking people who were in power. And the second two, he's going after people who have learning and sophistication. Right? So the first he said, this one he says, listen, what you need to know about God is God is the God of the living, not just, not the dead. To him, all are alive. Now the reason he talks about this is he's getting questioned by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priest class, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. They believed you were supposed to live righteously. God might bless you in this life, but there is no resurrection from the dead. And part of the reason they believed that is because they didn't believe that everything, anything outside the Torah, the first five books of the Bible— all the rest of the Old Testament, they didn't believe that that was as authoritative. And most of the good verses in the Old Testament about there being a resurrection are in those other books. Does that make sense? And so you'll notice in this passage a couple of things. One, they quote Moses. They say, Moses said this because Moses is the only one they'll listen to, right? If it's not in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we're not talking about it. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't quote other passages in the Old Testament about the resurrection. Because these guys wouldn't accept it. They quote Moses, and then when Jesus talks, he quotes Moses. Does that make sense? The second thing is the relative obscurity of the passage is quoted. Okay? So like, the Sadducees are trying to humiliate the idea of a resurrection. Now it turns out that there is something true about men that is pretty stable throughout history and across cultures, and it's this. They do not like sharing wives. 
It's just, it's a pretty broad, it's a pretty broad agreed upon thing with men. They just do not like sharing their wives with other men. And so the Sadducees are like, okay, we can work with this, okay? So they pull out this relatively obscure passage in Deuteronomy 25.5, which basically says that if there's brothers and a brother dies and they've married a woman and she hasn't had children to take care of her in her older age, right? She has no line legacy. That brother, even if he's married to another woman, has to take her on as an additional wife, or if he's not married, he has to marry her, and they should have children so that her, his brother has a line, and so she has a line, because there's no welfare state, guys, right? Your kids are your future in these days, okay? So they're like, okay, so imagine there's seven brothers, and then they go through, right? So then they die, and then like there's no, and then like she's married all seven of them. Whose wife is she in heaven, right? It's, the idea is, is that like it's an absurdity, right? They're assuming that even in heaven, men will not like sharing wives, which I imagine will be true. And so they say, they, so they think that they have shown that the concept of the resurrection is utterly absurd by this relatively obscure passage that they've added in a bunch of logical jumps to, which Jesus, of course, points out. He's like, look, in the age to come, like, all that stuff you think is relevant isn't relevant. In this age, people marry and are given in marriage. In that age, they won't. They're totally different. We're not still having babies in those days. Like, the whole thing has kind of changed. But the children of the resurrection will be alive forever. They will be indestructible. That's the most important thing. And then he does something that has always bothered me. He says, and you should have known this if you had read Exodus 3, 7. Right? Now, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but there are some of you who know exactly what I'm talking about. You have read this passage before. You've read Jesus' proof text, and it's always bothered you. Right? Because— like, it's not obvious why he's right. And he's claiming that he's so right that if they would have, like, just paid attention and not, like, been, like, building all of their lives into their own assumptions, they would have known. So, like, Jesus isn't just saying, hey, there's another perspective here. If you, there's another perspective you could consider. No, he's saying there's only one right answer. That one right answer is right in front of you. And if you had paid attention, you would have known it. Right? And now, you might not know this too. The story of the burning bush in Exodus 3 is not an obscure passage from Deut the Deuteronomy 20s, okay? It is one of the top, maybe five Bible stories of the Old Testament, okay? I mean, this is Moses being called by God to lead the Exodus. It is like the story. If you had any, any verses in the Bible memorized in this era of time, you would have memorized this. You would have known every word of it, you would have known that moment where Moses is before the burning bush and God himself is speaking to him, right? And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? Take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. And it is the beginning of the great story of the redemption and the creation of the Jewish people, right? And Jesus is like, you didn't even read it carefully, right? Now, how can, he, how can he say that, right? So, like, he quotes the verse. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. Okay, so this verse proves that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord, the, quote, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all are alive, for, in, for to him all are alive. Okay. The present tense in language is a tricky thing, right? Because why doesn't it just mean this? Why doesn't it just mean God is present and is God, and the God who is present and is God talking to Moses is the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
It could mean that. Why can't it mean that? Like, you could, I could say, like, I am the pastor of High Point, Lynn Haven, Christ Church, and blah, 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 right? And you would just, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's wrong. You'd be like, oh, yeah, well, he's presently the pastor of High Point, but he was a pastor at Lynn Haven. He was a pastor at, a pastor at Christ Church Lake Forest, but like, he's not now. That's obvious. But, but he right now is that guy because he's there, right? Why well, believe that it's not just God who is in the present, but also Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? Now listen, this is one of those moments where you have to ask the question of piety. Because what would, the, what, what would a heart given to unbelief do here? Right? It would admire its own intelligence and say, I have read the Bible critically. Read close-mindedly. And I have discerned and discovered this problem. The text of the Bible has many problems. It's a text, of course. And like, the like, Jesus misspoke. Like, Jesus is just not as compelling as people often say he is, right? What would piety do? You'd be like, okay, you wouldn't pick your nose. But you would say something like, <laughs> you'd be like, okay, so Jesus said this. I'm not a first century Jew. He seems pretty confident. Maybe there's something I don't get. Right? Maybe I need to bang on this a little bit more. Maybe I need to, right? So, you pay me to do this, so that's why I spent a bunch of time working on this. And it took a while. Like, I was pretty frustrated. Like, I, and I've read this many times. I've always been frustrated by it, okay? So here's, here's what I've got for you, okay? So first of all, the verse doesn't say, I am the God of your fathers, plural. It says, I am the God of your father, which I think has to mean Moses' father, which Moses may have never met, right? Because as a baby, he's put in the river. He's raised in Pharaoh's household. Who knows if he ever meets him, right? But personally, directly, Moses knows that his—this is his father—his own father's God, okay? And then he says, and he's the God, and now look at what he quotes. He doesn't quote the verb. He doesn't quote—Jesus quotes only a very specific portion of it. He doesn't say, I quote the I am section. He doesn't quote, I am the God of your father. He only quotes what follows. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, in Hebrew, you can list things. Just like any language. Almost any language you can do this, and you can do it in Hebrew. So he could have just said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, that's what most of us say when we quote this. We don't say the God of, the God of, the God of. We just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he does. And Jesus quotes it, and he apparently thinks it's important. You see, what, what Jesus is saying, he said, when Moses wrote this, he wrote out—now, and you got to remember, like, this is not being dictated. Like, this is—like, Moses isn't typing out Exodus while watching YouTube over his shoulder, okay? Like, in order to write a word in an ancient text, you had to take a stick, like, and dip it and, like, carve it out. There are no stray words in ancient texts. None, okay? But each time he writes, the God of, the God of, the God of. The God is professing in this moment— of supreme importance, not an obscure passage, an incredibly central passage, that he is the God of each one, and he mentions them each individually. I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. And Jesus is saying, that is a syntactical clue that you should have recognized where God is claiming individual godship presently over each one of them. 
and that none of the patriarchs are lost in his mind. None of them are in the past. None of them are simply dead. They're all alive to him. And if ultimately they would, he would be his God, present tense, truly forever, that necessitates a resurrection from the dead. Now, is that right? I don't know if I'm positive about that. I, I mean, Hebrew wasn't my kid language, right? But I think it might be. And the funny thing is, is they didn't argue with him in the text either. Let's look at the last thing in the do's and applications. So they get done, and the teachers of the law say, well said, teacher, because the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, were overwhelmingly believers in the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection, right? And so they're like, oh, we like this, Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, really? Well, I've got something for you, right? And so in the rabbinic literature of that time, if you read through it, the Messiah is always referred to as the son of David. Like you can read the, all the rabbinical writings of that time. The Messiah is the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Now why is that important? Well, because the Messiah is the son of David. But what's the son of David going to do? What's the significance that he's the son of David? And the answer is, David was the great liberating king. He was the one that fought against all Israel's enemies on all sides and gave them peace throughout his life. Like he is the great warrior. And the son of David, the Messiah, would come and be a great warrior. He was going to liberate the people. He was going to get rid of the Romans. He was going to be this guy. And the problem is, is Jesus is like, I don't know if you got the whole picture on what this guy is going to be. And so he says, if, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David refer to the Messiah as his Lord? Because that's what it says in Psalm 110, right? David wrote Psalm 110, and he said— Right? My Lord said to my Lord, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the first Lord is Yahweh, the Yahweh God, right? The second one is the one who is Lord over David. In Hebrew ideology, there's, it's impossible to think of a child, a further one, somebody further down the line, to be a greater heir than his former sire. So it can't be his child, Right? So he's talking to his Lord, and his Lord is sitting at the right hand of God himself, while God himself, without this second figure fighting, makes his enemies a footstool under his feet. So this Lord isn't David's son, merely at least. He is the conqueror of all things, but he doesn't fight, and Yahweh God makes all his enemies a footstool under his feet without him working. The whole rabbinical idea of the Messiah just up in smoke in one verse. Right? And he says, the reason why you guys are so interested in the Messiah being the son of David is because all you want is your political freedom. You love your position. You love devouring widows' houses. You love people worshiping you in the streets. Like, you don't want anything to change. The only thing you actually want to change is you don't want the Romans anymore. You want to take their place. You'd be, and, and you would be a worse taskmaster than them. Like, you know what they would probably say? Well, listen, you guys. You know, like, they're all in their flowing robes, and people greet them in the marketplace, and they're devouring widows' houses. And they're like, listen, if these Romans weren't here, we would live in prosperity. Our widows would be rich, right? Like, they are the ones devouring widows' homes, Jesus says. Is that just the Romans? You, know, you want to pass it off on your oppressors? You're just as bad an oppressor as they are. And that happens all the time in cultures everywhere. People who are oppressing their own people 
play it off like all the oppression is coming from some other group. It's human nature, because the other group really is oppressing them. And they think they're all better. Well, you know, if the Romans weren't here, it'd be fantastic. Jesus is like, it would be fantastic. It'd be just as bad. You're all humans. He's like, there's only one person who gets it. One person. And they're like, well, who? And he's like, you see that old lady over there putting those two copper coins in the box? You see that lady? She's given more than everybody. She gave all that she has to live on. She doesn't know who's going to feed her tomorrow. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know anything. She knows the temple people are corrupt. She knows somehow God still stands behind that whole thing. She doesn't know how. She just knows that she's devoted to God. She's given her heart to him. She's given her mind to him as best as she understands. She's giving everything she has to him down to her last coin. And Jesus is like, that's piety. So let's clarify a couple things as we finish here. The first is, is that we have to get in our minds. See, this is happening right before the cross. Before God's absolute display of complete mercy, one of his last big messages is that he is not flexible. He's not flexible. He's merciful. Some people, you might have heard, have you ever heard somebody refer to God as the great physician? Have you ever heard people say that? You know, God, the great physician. You know, God's like a spiritual doctor, right? Okay, here's another case in which the synoptic gospels, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it, all record it one time in the same situation with the same people. You know, it has nothing to do with a healing. Do you know that? There's no reference to healing in that section. Jesus heals tons of people. And yet in that passage, you know what it says? Jesus is hanging around with hookers and politicians, tax collectors and sinners, and he's with them, and he's talking to them, and he's eating with them, and they're all around him. And it's like, you would think that if they, they had some kind of contagious bug, he's going to get infected, right? And they're like, they're like, how is it that you're hanging out with these people? And Jesus says, listen, it's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. You see, the one situation in which God refers to himself in Christ as a physician, it has nothing to do with our physical ailments, but only everything to do with his merciful love for us as sinners. You see, he, he understands—look, he understands everything about you. Everything about you. He knows all about your bound-up resentments and the ways you lie to yourself and others. He knows about your secret fears and your— struggles with loneliness, and he understands your addictions and your compulsions. He understands the way you rage against him. He understands the conflict in your heart between worldliness and godliness. He understands all of the great moral battles you're fighting in your heart. He understands all of it. He even understands that you don't really want to be godly. <laughs> like, he gets that. He understands it. And in his mercy, if you will turn to him in piety, he wants to be your physician. He will treat you like a doctor. No judgment. Let's make you better. Because you've already made the moral decision. There's no moral decision left to be made. If you turn to God in piety, you're saying, I'm humble. I, like, I don't know. I'm not better than you. I don't know better than you. And I need your help. Please teach me. That's the only moral decision God requires to help you. The minute that decision is made, mercy flows. He's the physician. He wants to heal you and help you and save you and justify you and form you and love you right? But he's not flexible. If you want to tell him who you are, if you want to tell him how he should run the world, if you want to tell him what he should and shouldn't do, 
if you want to tell him all the ways he's been inadequate for you and let you down, if you want to tell him all that stuff, and if you want to be self-righteous about it and know that you're right and tell him how he's failed and how stupid an idea the church is or the Bible was or like whatever, like he's not going to agree with you. He's never going to be like, okay. No, he's going to be like, do you see that stone? Try punching it 170 times and see how you feel. Because that's what we're doing. But in it, he pledges that not only is he the rock that makes him stumble, he's also, right, he's also the one that we owe ourselves to, but he's also the one that gives resurrection in a new age, and he's the one that does, has done something so marvelous in our eyes in Christ that we've not yet even started to enjoy it, right? The second thing to clarify is piety is your greatest friend, and unbelief is always your greatest enemy. Don't, don't let—remember what I said about language early on, brain, mind? Remember that? People, people use words to help their unbelief feel better. Right? I, so many people talk about reading the Bible critically when they really mean unbelievingly. They, they come to problems like that and they just go, oh, look, I found another one. Right? Rather than, what's going on here? What is Jesus doing? How can I understand it? Right? One of the things to recognize is it's not just an issue of pride and humility. Pride and humility is big, but pride and humility can be done in a completely atheistic way. In addition to that, there is unbelief and piety. And one of the only things, and one of the first things we must affect in our hearts is we have to choose piety. We have to choose to be humble in ourselves and to trust God and then to turn to him thinking he's going to teach us. And if we don't, we will find a million reasons not to believe. We are very creative creatures. God has made us in his image. He created the whole universe. We are incredibly creative folk. We can either be so creative that when he gives us his word and we come to it with real piety, we can think creatively such as to see what's really there, or we can use our creativity to shove him as far as we can away, to justify ourselves, and to fill our hearts with the hardness of unbelief. Right? And then in relationship to vigilance, what do we have to look out for? These pages are full of things that we have to look out for. Right? One is, be really careful about the authority you think you have and the authorities which you seek to have over you. Right? I, it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, though he never said it. Um, watching a man in adversity tells you very little about him. Watching how a man handles power will tell you everything about his character. There is something universally corrupting about power. And um, we think we have so much of it. Even when we claim we have so little of it, we find ways to grab control of things. And we have to be really careful about that, both in ourselves and in the people who we want to give power over us. And then lastly, we need to be really vigilant about our sophistications and the ways in which we think that we're complicated and better. Like, in some ways, sophistication is really great. Like, a lot of layers of knowledge had to get built on themselves for a lot of different things to happen. Like, technologies are a great example of that, but that's true for almost any human advancement. You have to think—you have to, like, deal with things in a more complicated way and, like, work together more things more carefully. That's real. Sophistication is a real thing. But it's—it also can be just as easily an incredible sham. Right? Dostoevsky in the introduction to Brothers Karamazov said, we are much less sophisticated than we think we are. 
that when you actually deal with any individual person, even people who are highly educated, highly sophisticated, when they're actually struggling with things, they, you can basically boil them down to the seven deadly sins. Like, it's all instinct still. Like, we're all still just kind of, like, raging against life, and, like we're, like, we're really good at turning our resentments into, like, very complicated arguments, but, like, your heart is full of resentment. You're angry, okay? Or you're terrified that something's never going to work out, or something's never going to happen for you, or, like, you're afraid of losing your good name and to be shunned, to feel shame. Like, it's, it's, it's incredible. Like, you take almost any problem in your life, and you really back it down. You get brave enough to stop criticizing the Bible, start criticizing yourself, start looking at what's really going on, you start facing the things that you've covered over for years, and you really look at it, and it is like these deep, primal, basic, terrifying, humiliating facts about what you really think and feel. And our fake sophistications, which we generate like a factory, cover them over and cover them over and cover them over for our self-protection. And the most terrifying thing about Jesus is, is that he is a person who speaks the way of God in truth, paying no attention to who we are. He is inflexibly truthful. But this should be encouraging. One of the things that Jesus is eternally inflexible about is his mercy. Turn to him in one second in real piety, in real humble faith, and he will become your physician forever. He will be your true father and high priest. He will be the king and God that you require, and he will never repent of it. He will never turn from it. He will never give that job to somebody else. He is utterly inflexible about giving mercy to anyone who will turn to him permanently. I'm really glad he's not flexible but that he's merciful, that his love is long-suffering, not unconditional. Let's pray. God, these are, these are really difficult passages here at the end of the gospel where Jesus is confronting people, but we recognize that so much growth is conditional on our willingness to hear the truth, and that so much of our blindness is built into our delusions and our sin, and so— I mean, all I can say is as a church that we want to say, uh, yes, Lord. I mean, please confound us and tell us things that will terrify us. If we know, if we just know that you are a physician, that you are merciful, that you turn towards anyone who turns to you in piety, and you love them, and you help them, and you change them, and you fill them, and you promise to them, help, help us right now whether for the first time or for the millionth time, to fully give ourselves to you, to pay you the tribute that you deserve, because we bear your image and your inscription in Jesus' name. Amen.